Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh my dear brothers, sisters, friends and the foes out there and welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host Dili Hussain. Before I introduce today's guest I want to remind all the avid podcast listeners that you can find this episode on all three seasons on all the major audio platforms and if you tune in via YouTube remember to click subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel, like this video, leave a comment. Today's guest is a very special one. He actually requires no introduction, but I'm going to give him a very brief one because it's deserved. He is an erudite and celebrated and leading political activist and thinker, a celebrated academic who's published many books, uh, someone whose voice and opinion has shaped uh, the thoughts of many over the course of decades in Middle Eastern affairs, and that's none other than Ustad Azam Tamimi. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Hayakallah. Thank you for honouring us with your presence today. Well, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. I remember in my very early 20s, um, I used to listen to your lectures, your talks. And this is the first time after many years I've actually get to spend some time with you. I'm sorry it's happening on camera and not and didn't happen earlier. It just shows how old I am getting. <laughs> uh, you don't, you, you don't, the energy you bring is uh, quite opposite. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. May Allah give you a long and healthy life. Alhamdulillah. 11 weeks. It's been 11 weeks of stats since the events of October the 7th. Um, if we take the official figures of the Gaza's Ministry of Health, 20,000 are dead, of which 8,000 are children, uh, more than 50,000 injured. The numbers are very bleak. And for this show, I want to do reverse chronology. I want to go backwards. Um, if we go to the events of October the 7th, um, how much is the resistance? And when I say resistance here, I'm talking not just Hamas, all factions that were involved operationally, logistically, who were aware of what's going to happen. How much are they to blame for what's happening now or where we've arrived at now? Um, a fair-minded individual who knows the history of the conflict in that part of the world would not uh, blame Hamas or any resistance faction uh, for whatever that happened on the 7th of October. Mm -hmm. uh, Israel illegally occupies Palestine. Uh, Israel uh, had the entire Gaza Strip uh, under siege for 17 years, controlling who comes in and who comes out, what comes in, what comes out, controlling when the children can have milk and when they cannot when the sick can have medicine or when they cannot, controlling even the water, everything. So what does the world expect if you put an entire population of around 2.3 million people squeezed in a very narrow strip of land and you collectively punish them daily, uh, sometimes at will bombarding them and when they explode in the face of their oppressors, are they to blame? It would be crazy to blame them. Why do? Why are they being blamed for it? Why is that the? Why is that the predominant narrative, where we are in the United Kingdom and, and, and Anglosphere West? Why is that the predominant narrative? The mention that, hey, we are actually rescuing the people of Gaza from Hamas, and it's this, the resistance to blame, and it's these factions that you brought this upon yourself. I wouldn't call it a predominant uh, discourse. I think that's the discourse of the official um, establishment. Sorry. Uh, I think public opinion in the UK as well as around the world is shifting massively mm. yeah. uh, because for a change people are educating themselves about the history of the conflict mm -hmm. and about what uh, Zionism is about what Israel has been doing uh, to its uh, victims. Um, now, politicians in this country, the mainstream media, and those who are considered to be part of the official establishment are biased, uh, uh, are arrogant, and ignorant at the same time. And uh, these positions where the victims are blamed rather than the oppressors uh, are not new. Uh, we saw them in the case of Vietnam when people 
blamed the Vietnamese for defending themselves against U.S. imperialism. We saw it in the case of South Africa when these same arrogant uh, establishment people um, labeled the victims as terrorists, including Nelson Mandela himself. Now there's a statue in Parliament Square. Yes, Margaret Thatcher once <laughs> vowed he'd never be allowed to set foot in this country. And we remember that what happened when he came to this country. Mm -hmm. He was given a hero's welcome. Algeria, which was occupied by the French for 132 years, its people were called all sorts of things. People who are after the truth shouldn't be blinded by designations, by name-calling. And I'm really uh, very happy despite the pain I feel for the people of Gaza, that this pain is not in vain. It's opening people's eyes around the world and it's prompting people to learn and to, to seek the truth about what's going on there. In terms of October the 7th, was it just a case then, a cooker pressure that eventually burst out, i.e. a lash out to the, against the occupier? Or were there, do you believe, from your observations, from your analysis, were there other objectives? Was it just a case of uh, an eventual lashing out of the occupied against the occupier? Or were there other objectives? Um, there are still many details uh, about the motives as well as the actual execution of the attack uh, that we don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, what we know is very little compared what probably the future will reveal mm -hmm. uh, to uh, people. Uh, however, the only difference really this time is that for a change, the Palestinians decided to take the initiative. And this is what um, really uh, angered the Israelis so much and their allies in the West. As if they're saying, how dare you, Palestinians? How dare you attack? How dare you do this to us? Uh, and actually, these Palestinians were simply exercising a legitimate right. Under international law. Under international law, under all conventions, under all norms. Um, yet we know already that the scope of the operation on the 7th of October uh -huh. was supposed to be much more limited than what it turned to be. Um, I think from what we have, uh, the planners of the attack only intended to capture a few uh, soldiers, take them back to Gaza to bargain for the release of Palestinian prisoners in Israeli detention centers. When they arrived in those areas where Jewish settlements exist today, and by the way, much of that territory used to be the place where the refugees in Gaza, their ancestors used to live. Reside, yeah. yeah, only seven, or what, only uh, less than a hundred years ago. It's the ancestral home and farmland. Yes. Uh, when they arrived there, they discovered that there was a total collapse. The Israelis were not prepared for this attack um, and they discovered that they could take a lot more than they were uh, uh, hoping for. Not only that, I think things got out of hand and it is as if fate intended this operation to be um a defining moment in the uh in the struggle a turning point do you believe it is a big milestone i believe firmly that it is and i i I'd, I'd like to remind you probably you came across this on that very day the 7th of october a few commentators in the united states as well as in europe likened what happened on the 7th of October to what happened in 1968 in Vietnam in what is known as the Tet Offensive. Mm -hmm. The Tet Offensive was the turning point in the struggle of the Vietnamese people against American imperialism. It is the moment that set in motion the process that led 
to the re removal of that American presence uh, in that part of the world. Uh, and I believe the same thing can be said about the 7th of October. Many will see this exchange you and I have just had. I mean, I was recently on the Piers Morgan show and he asked me squarely, he goes, do you believe, Dilly, that this is an act of terrorism? I said, forget about what you think and what you want to label. Under international law, the first protocol of the UN Geneva Conventions, 1982 UN Resolution 37 and 43, and many other international stipulates, state that an occupied people can physically resist invasion and occupation. Irrespective of what you want to label it, groups or anything otherwise, this is the position. Some would regard this, what I've just said and what you articulated as well, that to coin what happened on the 7th as resistance is actually support. And that's problematic, that is, because we know what they're trying to do in terms of incrimination. But for us to articulate that the, the Palestinians' right to resist equates as support for terrorism, do you think this is a very problematic take? Because many Western anchors and news journalists, they are doing this to their Muslim and pro-Palestine guests. The, even to the extent where now Sky News and BBC will say, hey, look, you know, we talk about the, the Palestinian Authority being the alternative. They've not condemned the 7th of October. And so everything's about making the guest condemn the 7th of October and condemn Hamas. And So is it problematic to articulate a case for resistance and it being wrongly equated with support for terrorism? Because this is what's happening now, Stad. It shouldn't be problematic. Um, what is problematic here is for people to succumb to this pressure uh, exercised by the mainstream media and the politicians. As you described, I mean, when they meet you, the first question they ask you, would you condemn mm. what happened? Why should I condemn? This is not the issue. And I don't care how you label things. And by the way, it is well known that labeling uh, is um, a conversation stopper. Because once you label someone or something uh, as sinister, as something that is sinister, uh, then you control uh, the conversation. And uh, you restrict people who are sitting uh, in front of you. I remember during the days when I used to be interviewed by these mainstream uh, channels, they don't invite me anymore. You're but, too much for them now. But whenever Sorry. they invited me in the past, sometimes they posed that question to me. And my answer was, yes, I condemn the Israelis who are occupying my mother's house. We need to remind them, even though they don't want to hear, they don't want to listen, they don't want their audiences to be reminded. Mm -hmm. We need to remind them of the root of the conflict. The root of the conflict is not in Palestine, is not in the Arab world, is not in the Muslim world. This issue was created in Europe by London. Europeans for the purpose of serving European interests mm -hmm. to solve a problem that Europe had called the Jewish problem, a problem that Muslims never had because Jews lived in Muslim lands peacefully, coexisted. Prospered prospered, etc., because they are people of the book, because they are Ahlul Dhimma, people of covenant. It is a European problem. And that's why if you think of Israel other than a colonial outpost, a European colonial outpost, you will miss the point. You won't be able to address the issue. This is the problem. Come and talk to me about the problem you created. I'd say this to the uh, British government, I'd say this to the British mainstream media, I'd say this to the Americans, I'd say to them, you created a problem, you imposed it on me. You want me to give away my mother's house, my father's land, you want me to remain a refugee, myself, my children and my grandchildren, because you chose to solve your own problem at my own expense, and that I'll never accept. Very quickly, uh, after the events of October the 7th and then the war that was then waged and the brutal war that was waged by the uh, occupying entity um, the hashtag Hamas is ISIS started trending uh, and you started seeing mainstream personalities celebrities politicians, editors of newspapers affiliated and associated with the establishment or that dominant narrative in the mainstream Hamas is ISIS started trending 
you've written two books on the group. Um, well, it's actually one book, but with two titles. With two titles. Because the uh, British uh, liked a title which the Americans didn't like, so they just changed the title of the book because it has two editions, a British edition and an American edition. So the unwritten chapters by the unwritten chapters is for the UK edition. Is the UK edition, yes. and the American is a history from within. Exactly. Is Hamas anything like ISIS, theologically, politically, demographically? You see, this sort of comparison um, again misses the point. Even ISIS itself was a product of abuse on the part of these superpowers. In Iraq? In Iraq and elsewhere. Obama apologized for it. Obama acknowledged it. Uh, and now they, they allowed uh, a phenomenon to happen because of their mismanagement of things because of the injustices they exacted on the Iraqis and the rest of the region. Uh, not only, I, I mean, you see, ISIS, to really to be, to be sure, ISIS uh, came into existence as a, immediately as a response to the coup against democracy in Egypt. When the people of Egypt went to the uh, are you talking about Rabah here? They, they elected their first democratically elected, elected president. There was no ISIS. Even Al-Qaeda diminished. Many Al-Qaeda uh, leaders came to the conclusion that probably their path wasn't the right path. This is after Mohammed Morsi came into power. This is after Mohammed Morsi came to power. Because it seemed that democratization, the, tra the transition to a democracy was the least costly uh, method of change for the better. Yet, when the coup happened, uh, with the uh, collusion of the Western powers with despotic regimes in the region, uh, most notably Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates who funded the coup, individuals who became part of ISIS turned to us and said, ah, we told you, democracy is not the way. We told you it ne will, it, they'll never allow you through democracy. And then came the events uh, in Iraq. So I am not even prepared to condemn a phenomenon, no matter how ugly it is, mm -hmm. without first condemning those who are responsible for its existence. And create the conditions for it. Yes. You make people so desperate, you humiliate them so much, Muslims have been humiliated in their own countries. They've been humiliated across the world. Those who drew, drew cartoons of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu to debase Islam and the Muslims, to humiliate the Muslims. Those who attack the hijab. Those who want to impose restrictions on the practice of personal rituals of Islam. What do they expect? You pressure the Muslims, you, you squeeze them into a corner. You spit on them, you kick them. You slap them, you swear at them, you abuse them. And then you, you want them what? To offer you a hand in peace? That's just uh, crazy. So we're talking here about reactions to situations that are uh, unwholesome. You create an unwholesome sit, uh, situation and then you, you don't want to expect any repercussions. Hamas would not have existed had it not been for the occupation. The root cause of the problem is occupation. Solve, solve the problem of occupation and that will be the end of it. Uh, before 1987, there was no Hamas. There was Fatah. There was the PLO and all its factions. They domesticated the PLO and lured it into accepting the legitimacy of Israel in exchange for being recognized as a representative of the Palestinians, but nothing more. And that led to the emergence of Hamas. Because so long as there is something wrong, so long as there is injustice, there will be someone to resist. Finish Hamas today, there will be someone else tomorrow or the day after. And that, that's the stupidity and the silliness of Western leaders. They don't want to deal with the real issue. The real issue is occupation. And do you know what the irony is here, Ustad, as well? And I've spoken to various 
uh, individuals who have different thoughts on the peace process. I said, look, the IRA were terrorists for the best part of 100 years. Yeah, You had the 30-year war. The Queen and Blair eventually sat down mm. and made peace yes. in the Good Friday Agreement. We already mentioned Nelson Mandela and the anti-apartheid movement. This was a group and a movement that during some of the operations, children and women had been killed. Now, you, you literally have a statue of the man in Parliament Square as a mm. reminder. And we can carry on giving these very examples. So do not say you don't. Uh, Taliban, subhanAllah, you fight them for 20 years and the country goes back to them. Yes. And now you have Tory MPs are being fired because they came back and said the country's in a better place. So don't say that you don't talk to terrorists mm. or, or talk to the people that you label. You do. Sometimes it's too late. So talking on, and I'm glad you mentioned it, uh, 1987 there was no Hamas there was Fatah and Yasser Arafat and it was more of a left-leaning pan-Arab socialist kind of dominance in the Palestinian liberation movement um, why did that shift change from what was very popular in the 60s and 70s and 80s which is pan-Arabism uh, pan-socialism obviously in light of the Cold War uh, you had many of these revolutionary military leaders that carried out uh, coups and, and they were seen as liberators at the time, sadly became despots over time. Um, why was there a shift from a resistance and a liberation movement that was quite left-leaning, right? But left in the Arab context. People shouldn't see it as communists. It was left very much in the context of the Arab Muslim world. But now resistance, which is more inclining towards Islam, why, why was there that shift? Well, there are two reasons, really, principally. Uh, the first is that there's been a shift in the public mood. Uh, although Fatah, in its origins, was Islamic. Was it? Yes, in 1957, most of its founders, if not all, apart from Yasser Arafat, were actually former members of the Muslim Brotherhood. SubhanAllah, I did not know this. Yes. Wow. Uh, Many I would not have known this. I explain this in detail in my book. I, I have a chapter about this. Um, what happened actually later is that because of the uh, d dominance of Nasserism, which is the ideology uh, of Jamal Abdel Nasser, the Egyptian leader mm. at the time, uh, these Fatah members who remained within Fatah, some left of course, uh, accepted that they could only be recognized uh, by the uh, regimes that existed at the time in the Arab world only if they became nationalists. So it was a compromise they made. And, yeah, and renounced their Islamic identity. And this is what happened gradually. Um, and of course, despite this, uh, they were always uh, at times uh, uh, of crisis, reminded that they were originally Muslim Brotherhood members. <laughs> I remember one of them saying, uh, alcohol we drank, zina we committed, all sins we have perpetrated and when they are angry with us they tell us you are members of the muslim brotherhood <laughs> uh, but anyway after the defeat of uh, uh, of arab nationalism uh, with the defeat of the arabs in 1967 mm -hmm. there was a massive revival of islam islamic uh, people uh, rethinking uh, their identity looking back within and around them and into their history that was m my generation uh, I, as a young man i remember uh, we started going to the mosques prior to that only old people went to the mosques that's what that, that's the phase of islamic revivalism as we call it or sahwa al-islamiyya islamic awakening was 1967 that humiliating? That was after the humiliating defeats of 1967. So we're talking about the early 70s. And the early 70s also coincided with the defeat of the PLO in Jordan. And then the problems it entered, it uh, was caught in, in Lebanon. Lebanon. So all of this was uh, in favor of the Islamic trend. Are we talking about Black September there you were talking about? Yes. Yes. Okay. Black September of 1970. Mm -hmm. uh, so by the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood, which was the most popular movement or the, pre the pre predominant movement in the Arab world, had a chapter in Palestine. That chapter was established in 1946. Um, because of the influence of Nasserism in the 50s and the 60s, uh, their 
they were really diminished somehow, but remained uh, alive. They flourished after the defeat of 1967. And after 1967, Gaza, the West Bank, and the rest of Palestine were rejoined because mm -hmm. Israel ended up occupying the whole thing. Mm -hmm. um, so that gave a boost to the Islamic movement. And this is where some silly uh, commentators came to the conclusion that Hamas was created by Israel. Uh, Mehdi Hassan has echoed this. Mehdi Hassan, I, many others. I, I, I really had so much respect for him prior to that article which he wrote, but then uh, I felt how how shallow he he uh, he was um, because he hasn't read the history. He didn't consult the experts. Uh, he just uh, reverberated uh, some of the things that uh, the opponents of Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood uh, keep saying. So, if I may ask you, Stad, how true is the claim? that Israel financially, materially, or any other way supported Hamas because it saw the PA as a threat and it wanted to counter that threat. Is there any truth in that? No truth whatsoever. Where did it start from? Um, when Hamas came into existence in 1987, it was actually a process <clears throat> of conversion from the Muslim Brotherhood to Hamas, to the Islamic resistance movement. Hamas is the acronym for Harakat al-Muqawam al-Islamiyah, mm -hmm. Islamic resistance movement. The PLO was taken by surprise, as the Israelis. And uh, Yasser Arafat couldn't believe it. Uh, Yasser Arafat was in the habit of always accusing the Israelis of doing things he didn't like. He called the Intifada uh, a Jewish conspiracy or a Zionist conspiracy. He called Hamas a Zionist conspiracy. And then people, especially the leftists at the time who supported the uh, uh, the PLO adopted these narratives. Adopted this this narrative and just kept kept repeating it without. Uh, and the, the reason behind this is that prior to this conversion from the Muslim Brotherhood into Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood was pacifist in Palestine. There was only a very brief attempt in 1983 by Sheikh Ahmed Yassin to uh, carry out a military operation and that was discovered by the Israelis and he was imprisoned yes. together with some of the members closest to him. Apart from that, the Muslim Brotherhood, Brotherhood's position was that we Palestinians are not in a position yet to enter into confrontation with the occupation. We need to concentrate more on reforming society. But the Intifada happened in 1987 uh, that was the 8th of December 1987 mm -hmm. and the members and the leading the leaders the, the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood in Gaza met on the 9th and decided it was about time we renounced our previous policy of pacifism in favor of social reform and join the public in their uh, this, uh, civil disobedience because it started as civil disobedience actually yes. it didn't start as a absolutely as a military uh, effort uh, so some plo members including yasser arafat were arguing oh what were you doing when we were fighting when we were being arrested mm. you were just in the mosques reading quran and doing this and doing that the israelis must have been happy with you of course if you are not resisting the israelis the israelis probably wouldn't touch you at that time mm -hmm. Now the context has changed. The entire thing today, the Israelis persecute all the Palestinians, irrespective, irrespective, of, what, irrespective yeah. of what you're doing. Yeah. How true is it then? Conversations that are now taking place that what's actually happening in Gaza is actually preparing the stages for a potential PA takeover. That was what could potentially be happening is that they're clearing Gaza for the Palestinian Authority to take over. Um, because that is a far better viable alternative to Hamas uh, and more palatable to the Western audiences. Is there any truth to these conversations and these claims? These conversations are taking place. Uh, there are all sorts of scenarios that people have uh, been uh, talking about. Of course, the Israelis and their allies would have wished to see Hamas uh, crushed completely, uh, would have loved to see the Palestinian Authority take over, uh, why is that, sir? Why, why is there video evidence of even muftis associated to the Palestinian Authority being condemned by the congregation? You know, the, many within the occupied territories see them as collaborators and people who conspire with Because that's what they are. That's what they are. The Palestinian Authority 
was the product of the Oslo Agreement. Mm-hmm. Yasser Arafat thought he was cleverer than the Israelis. He thought he'd just give them initially what they asked for, and then he'd work for the establishment of a Palestinian state. He genuinely believed he could do that. However, the Israelis knew what they were doing and wh- who th- what they were dealing with. They created an entire body of Palestinians whose personal interests became interwined, interwoven with occupation. So they, the, the Palestinian Authority, our people who work for the Palestinian Authority today, hate to see the occupation come to an end because they lose all the privileges they've, uh, they've gained as a result of being in the service of the occupation. The whole purpose of Oslo, as we know of it today, is to become a security uh, body working for the occupation, protecting Jewish settlers and Israeli troops from Palestinian attacks. When Yasser Arafat realized what he ended up uh, doing, he returned from Camp David in 2000. There was a a conference there hosted by President Clinton, attended by Ehud, uh, Ehud Barak, yep. Prime Minister of Israel, and Yasser Arafat. And it came to nothing because eventually they wanted Yasser Arafat to concede even Muslim rights in Al-Aqsa. He returned from Camp David and decided, I will twist the arm of the Israelis by initiating a second intifada. He contacted Hamas and the other factions. They worked together. The second intifada erupted in September uh, 2000 Mm -hmm. and the Israelis decided to destroy him and the Palestinian Authority. They went after him and eventually killed him. Brought back Mahmoud Abbas, who was willing to do whatever they uh, asked him to do Mm -hmm. and uh, revamped the Palestinian Authority uh, in what became known as the New Palestinian a Palestinian individual serving the Palestinian Authority whose doctrine is that the enemy is not Israel, but those who are fighting Israel. And that's why the Palestinian Authority today is disrespected by the majority of the Palestinians. Most Palestinians would like to see it come to an end, uh, but it is entrenched in the occupation. How would you then, that puts, that puts us in the West, in Britain, in an awkward situation when we see representatives of the said authority then obviously giving primetime interviews and many people may not be aware, they may see a fantastic interview, a principled interview where very good things were said, very principled things were said but then there is a wider conversation that the very representative of the Palestinian Authority is one that is seen as a collaborator of the entity. I don't want to mention no names or anything, but I'm just saying that for Western audiences, they may not be privy to that information, that historical context. Well, the person you're referring to, uh, I mean, to be fair to him, his, his uh, conduct uh, throughout the, the uh, British and Western uh, mainstream media is brilliant. Has been commendable. Yes. Fantastic. And I think he's doing a great service to the cause. Agreed. As an individual. Absolutely. And I do distinguish that uh, uh, conduct uh, from the PN, the Palestinian Authority and its leadership. Um, now, how he himself reconciles his personal position uh, with his official position, that's his problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have to be, f- to be fair to him. He's, he's really doing a, a great. However, top pers- personnel or t- top top personalities in the Palestinian Authority have been making statements that aroused the anger uh, of the Palestinian and Arab public. Like? People like Hussein sheikh who recently said, uh, we will uh, make Hamas accountable for what it has done and what it's causing to Gaza as if they are to blame. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas's Mufti, who was deserted in the Friday yes, prayer, people yes. left him alone in the Friday mosque one, yes. because uh, he also came up with uh, similar statements. Uh, so it is very clear that people on the ground in the Palestinian Authority are still collaborating with the Israelis. Hamas uh, always 
uh, made a point of this, that if you want us to really work for national unity, if you want us to work together, how can we do this if you are still collaborating with the Israelis? So the Muslim reconciliation nearly happened. It ha nearly happened quite a few years ago, no? What happened was um, a marathon of meetings and talks. Nothing came out of them because every time Israelis intervened and imposed conditions on this reconciliation. On this re reconciliation, so reconciliation was never achieved, never worked. Why did they, why did what they have to say even be considered for two Palestinian factions to make peace? Um, uh, uh, see, these are two groups of brothers that are wanting to reconcile. Why does what Israel has to say couldn't the PA they to say to hell with you? We are reconciling with our brothers. Then there will be there will no longer be the Palestinian Authority. They will, they will no longer be recognized by Israel and provided with the privileges they have. That's the problem. Um, I've always personally believed that unity is not the objective. Uh, the objective is the clarity of vision. If we agree on the vision, then we can talk about unity. But if we have two completely contrasting visions, what's the point of talking? You have one Palestinian faction that believes Israel has a right to exist in my mother's house, on my father's land. And you have another Palestinian faction that believes that Israel has no right to be there. How can they work together? It's impossible. So could it then be assumed or concluded that what's happening in Gaza as we speak and has been happening for the last 11 weeks may favor and benefit the Palestinian Authority quite considerably? I don't think so. Um, uh, I don't see uh, this scenario in which the Palestinian Authority comes back to Gaza and rule it uh, likely to work. I think what we are seeing today in Gaza, despite the massive destruction, despite the massive killing and the pain this is causing to the people of Gaza and to their families elsewhere and their friends and their supporters, there is uh, one hundred percent unity and solidarity between the resistance and the people of Gaza. Uh, the purpose uh, or the objective Israel pursued right from the beginning, since the seventh of October, was to turn the population in Gaza against Hamas and against the resistance. They have not succeeded, despite everything they've tried. They haven't succeeded. The resistance is still strong, is still causing pain to the Israelis, and I am optimistic that eventually the Israelis will be defeated. They were defeated before, and they will be defeated again. Ustad, you know from your research, um, and just from your reading and from your uh, awareness, how many different factions are there in Gaza? Because all, all people know is Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, khalas. and maybe it's popular front for the liberation of Palestine, maybe. Other than that, are there other factions? There are several groups, but uh, they are really very small groups. Uh, and their existence uh, has its reasons, its context, but it doesn't really matter. The major group is definitely Hamas, uh, followed by Islamic Jihad. They had some tensions in the past, but they are on much better terms today. Mm -hmm. They coordinate uh, and cooperate well. And um, so it, it's really not, not, not an issue that there are so many uh, factions. You seem, I think in the last 11 weeks, mashallah, you seem the most untroubled, dare I say, nonchalant about how they are labeled and perceived. Why is that? Because for many Muslims, they are scared. You see, because they're scared. They're like, like resistance, Hamas, Jihad, terrorism, laws, all this, they're scared. But you seem quite untroubled by this. You seem, you seem quite untroubled by the fact that they have been labeled in a particular way. They have been legally ascribed in a particular way. Why, is there, why do you seem quite unfazed by this? Look, if labeling uh, disturbs you and frightens you, you might as well not do anything. And I've learned my lessons throughout the years of my activism. I've learned that if you succumb to intimidation, that's your end and the end of your work. 
let me tell you a story. Please do. I was once a senior lecturer in a higher education institute owned by Muslims here in this country. And in my fourth year as a senior lecturer, uh, the Times published an article in which they mentioned my name in addition to other names, including the name of the head of that establishment. Yet I was summoned by the management and told that uh, the appearance of your name in the article is problematic for us. So if you want to continue with us, uh, you need to end all activism. Uh, but if you cannot, we are sorry, we cannot have you. So I resigned and left. Um, I remember when Panorama uh, did uh, a documentary, one of their documentaries by John Ware. Mm -hmm. The infamous John Ware. A devil, a, a son of a devil. Yes. <laughs> um, some of the people he interviewed in that documentary, and I was one of them, mm -hmm tried to be apologetic, tried to prove to him they were not really associated with this or with that. And they appeared very bad in that documentary. When he came to me and he asked me, he said, but because of what you're saying and where you're standing, people might think you are an extremist or a terrorist. And I said to him, so what? He was taken aback and he said, so what? I said, yes, so what? You call me whatever you like. Label me the, whatever you want. I don't care. I believe I am defending the truth. I'm defending justice. And I think the problem we've been having with the Muslims in this country, previous generation, by the way, I'm very delighted to see a different generation. Absolutely. Different generation. Very optimistic. Very the optimistic. older generation were so easily intimidated. They'd, they'd, they, they, they'd want to be dissociated from you and have nothing to do with you if your name came up somewhere. And it's stupid because it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't. If we stick all together, if we defend what we believe to be just and true, we will not be alone. There are millions of people today around the world, including in this country, who are not Muslim, who are of different backgrounds, many of them are Jewish, who agree with us that the Palestinian people have the right to resist occupation. Many of them even believe Hamas is not a terrorist organization and that the British government was wrong in taking that path and designating Hamas as a terrorist organization. And let it be known that the British government at one time had a back channel with Hamas really? and did business with Hamas. Really? Yes. You see, these guys, they are so hypocritical that when they are in trouble, they would want to talk to you because they are in trouble. But when they are so haughty and arrogant and and add to this their, their ignorance as well, they just call you a terrorist. They don't want to have anything to do with you. What period are you talking about? Just for our viewers and listeners, when the British administration had communication and negotiation with Hamas? Before the end of the uh, <clears throat> Arab Spring. Okay. Before the end of the Arab Spring, when it was, when it seemed likely that the Islamists across the Arab world were heading to power. So we're talking about the Cameron. The David Cameron administration. Cameron, yes, yes. Yes, Cameron. And not only that, even the Israelis were dying for a back channel with Hamas and with the Muslim Brotherhood. And con they contacted some European governments and asked them, can you please facilitate this? We want to talk to these people because clearly they are going to be the government everywhere from now on. Mm -hmm. yes. Only when Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, with the collusion of some Western powers, uh, brought down the government of Dr. Mohammed Morsi, rahimahullah, I mean. that the tide changed and they no longer wanted to talk to anybody. And I'm glad you actually bought it there because now I want to kind of zone out a little bit uh, to the wider Arab uh, world. And I want to just go through some countries, some nations, who have been very closely associated with this struggle 
And I think it's also important for our younger audiences to understand that the root of this entire um, occupation can go back to World War One. It can do. It can even go back a bit earlier to Theodore Herzl and his conversation with Abdul Hamid and many, many things that were happening during that period. So it's not uh, just 75 years, it's well over 100 years. And Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon are countries that are very closely associated with the, with the uh, events of this region. Let me say if you if I can just go through some countries, and I just want to get your thoughts on. But by the way, though, most of these countries didn't exist. Of course, uh, hundred years ago. Of course, these are Sykes and Picot. Yes. You know, the, the straight yeah. lines were done by yeah. over a whiskey and a, and a ruler and a pencil. Yes. That's what it was. Yeah. Um, let's start with Iran, because Iran is a very important country uh, in understanding the the, the Palestinian events, uh, simply because of two reasons: the resistance themselves praise Iran, and the West seems to believe, and when I say the West, I'm talking about establishment, uh, the warmongers, the neocons, they say, no Iran, no Hamas, no Hezbollah, no Iran. Meaning that they are a key player in terms of financing, arming, logistical help, whatever it may be. Does the West give Iran too much credit than it deserves, or is it does it actually deserve more than it's due? Because obviously, with with the Muslims, with the, especially amongst the Sunnis, we are still troubled over Syria. I, I think that's something that's irreversible for Iran amongst the minds of the of the Sunnis. That, irrespective of how supportive you are of the resistance, we will not forget Syria. I, at least from our observations, we're seeing that that's going to be a very big hurdle for people to see Iran the same way that it once did. But does Iran get, does the hand get overplayed? Too much credit given or not enough credit? What's your views on Iran? I think it's partly to do with labeling. If you uh, draw a, a, a very bad image of Iran in the minds of the average European citizen or Western citizen, mm -hmm. then you would want to associate everything that you are hostile to, to, to Iran. that image, to yes. Iran. And this is what they're doing. I mean, uh, re recently, uh, uh, Ah, I think it's today or probably yesterday, uh, Cameron, the current uh, mm. foreign secretary, uh, said that Hamas, Hezbollah, the Houthis and all these guys all Iran. are all Iran. All Iran. I don't think he is ignorant or stupid, but he is misleading the public. He knows better to say this mm -hmm. because it's not true. The Palestinian resistance predated the Islamic Republic of Iran. Predated. It's been there since 47, 48. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Khomeini came in 1979. And Palestinians have been struggling since before 1948. Uh, yet, of course, Iran is an enemy of Israel. Iran has issues with the West. Iran has issues with America. Remember, the Iranian revolution was a revolution against a lackey of the Americans. A stooge of the Americans. Shop the Iran. regional policeman as they called him, the Shah of Iran. Mm -hmm. And so there are deep wounds and the Westerners didn't want these wounds to be healed because they continued to insist on excommunicating Iran and even changing the regime in Iran. Now, this has nothing to do with the problems we have or the disagreements we have with Iran over the Arab Spring. Over the Arab Spring, the Iranians are acting hypocritically are uh, acting uh, with self-interest and not in support even of the values they claim to believe in. But when it comes to Palestine, their principal motivation mm -hmm. is that they feel threatened by the Israelis as much as the Israelis feel threatened by the Iranians. So it's a coalition of those who see Israel as the enemy. It's as simple as that. Egypt because of the following reasons uh because as we mentioned already twice on this program um the illegal removal of egypt's first democratically elected president uh, dr morsi may allah have mercy on his soul amin and all of those who have been killed and unjustly oppressed as a result of that amin um egypt in the context of the current sisi regime and that there have been talks that the actual ideal outcome for Israel is to actually force all the Palestinians from Gaza into the Sinai and let it be an Egyptian problem. What's your thoughts on Egypt and its role in what's happening? The current Egyptian 
regime's role is a very bad role, of course. Uh, Egypt, under the current regime, uh, participates with Israel uh, in the siege that is imposed on Gaza. And this government in Cairo is not sovereign enough to open the Rafah crossing by itself. They need for a green light from Tel Aviv. Every time when people ask them about this, they say, eh, we wish we could open the Rafah crossing, but the Israelis refuse. And Is that really the case? Yes, that's the case. So can we play out what would happen if they did it without their approval? Could that be a, an instigator for war? You have an authority that again, like the Palestinian authority in Ramallah, uh, that has personal interests uh, interwoven with the Zionist regime. So it, goes against, problem. so it goes against the interest to even allow it. Yes, as individuals, not Egypt. Mm. It's against We're Egyptian. talking about the regimes, we're talking yeah. about the officials, yeah. the government. Indeed, the, the indeed, Nizam, indeed. Yes. And uh, that's why Israel uh, supported the coup against uh, Mohammed Morsi, rahimahullah. Now, um, you are originally from Hebron. Yes. Uh, but then, obviously, you got citizenship in, in Jordan. Um, Abu Ubaidah, one of the most mysterious individuals in the whole world right now. The man that people know very little about. Why did he call Jordan the sleeping giant? Because Jordan, first of all, has the longest borders with Palestine. More than 300 kilometers, I think mm. even up to 500 kilometers, maybe. maybe, Nearly 500 kilometers. Uh, Jordan, before Sykes-Pico was part of the region, it's the same tribes, the same people. Although they created a Jordanian uh, nationality or national identity as opposed to a Palestinian national identity, these are all fake identities, actually. We are the same people. We mm -hmm. are the same tribes. So the majority of the people in Jordan uh, are with Palestine and with the resistance. Um, and it, it is next door, of course. Um, but to say it's a sleeping giant means it has potential to do something. It has. Every, every, every neighboring country to Palestine has a great potential, uh, provided the shackles are broken. Um, the shackles or the shackles? Which one? <laughs> <laughs> well, both. both. <laughs> um, so, I mean, the Arab world today is, American, is an American colony. The Americans have military bases everywhere in the region. And many of these regimes, they live on American handouts. So it's not in their interest to go against the American will. And that's why I believe... Uh, Would you put Qatar and Turkey in that category? Qatar uh, house military bases? To some extent, of course, though, because they are far away, they are they have more room for maneuver. Um, and uh, Qatar is playing this cleverly, uh, as they did with the Taliban, Taliban yeah. because they're, they're providing a service which is appreciated despite some uh, discontent uh, in the Congress in America. Uh, but nevertheless, it is appreciated that they're playing this role. I think Qatar, among all the Arab states, is the more sympathetic with the Palestinian cause, definitely. Turkey? Turkey is a bit disappointing. Um, many people are disappointed with the current position of the government in Turkey. But of course, how much can Turkey do? Yes, probably they could have done a little bit more, like uh, stopping trade with Israel like uh, severing ties or at least threatening to sever ties. They haven't done that. Um, I think Turkey, after the uh, uh, success of the counter-revolution uh, in the Arab world, embarked on a strategy of mending relations with all around them. And that's uh, ethically is, uh, is, is problematic. Why do we not apply the same Husna Dhan to then UAE and Saudi Arabia? Why are we so harsh with them for normalization? Why are we so harsh with them for seeking trade deals and, and this and that with the Zionist entity when Turkey does it, when Egypt does it, when Jordan does it, when everyone else does it? Whoever 
colludes with the Zionists against the Palestinians shares in the blame. We shouldn't make a distinction. Uh, but of course, there are differences between Turkey on the one hand and the UAE and Saudi Arabia on the other. Turkey, the current government in Turkey, inherited a situation that they did not create. Um, and at times, Turkey did uh, express solidarity with the Palestinians, provided certain uh, facilities. Whereas what is happening today in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates is that there is full collusion with the Israelis in their war against Gaza, to the extent that when the Israelis could not produce uh, their own vegetables and fruits as a result of the war, the UAE is sending them uh, their needs. And can you, can you imagine when the people of Gaza are starved to death? So, uh, not only that, look at the media. I mean, at least the Turkish media is with the Palestinians. Saudi and UAE media is, is with Israel, 100%. The reason why I ask this is because people will watch this podcast and they will criticize me, they will criticize yourself, and they'll criticize other guests and editorial stances that we have taken. And they will still bring it back to the fact that, hey, there seems to be a double standard here, right? Um, Egypt, Egypt also willingly made peace with Israel, as did the Jordanians, as did um, Yasser Arafat. Everyone was willingly, no one had a gun to their head and said, meet in Oslo, or meet in Camp David and do this and that. What, why is there a double standard? There, what is, you guys what is the double standard? I criticised Egypt as much as I criticise everybody but, else. But, 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 okay, but are you saying that their collaboration is it should be seen differently to that of whatever Turkey and Qatar and others may have or may not have? Are you saying that what Saudi and the UAE is doing should be seen differently? No, what the Egyptians are doing, what the Jordanians are doing, what the UAE are doing, what the Saudis are doing is the same thing. They're all colluding with the Israelis, mm. unfortunately. Yet the Saudis and the Emiratis are doing this even more uh, actively and more uh, blatantly. Um, because the Jordanian media, for instance, shows solidarity with the Palestinians. Whereas the Saudi and UAE media uh, is openly supportive of Israel. And this is problematic because this means they want to change public opinion. Of course, but they have failed. I mean, the recent uh, poll, poll, 91% shows that most Saudis are with the, with yep. the resistance, yep. with the Palestinians. Mm. So these, these guys, the governors of Abu Dhabi and of Riyadh, they spend billions of dollars in order to uh, change perceptions and uh, deceive the public and none of this is working. Ustad, whenever, and especially more so with this current war on Gaza, but even previously, whenever Gaza is bombed, whenever Al-Aqsa is transgressed upon, you hear the, the people there call out to Arab rulers, where are you Arab rulers? Where are you Islamic nations? You know, they ask this, you know. I'm sure you've seen many videos from the from the people of Gaza, you know, condemning the rulers, you know, saying, "Where are you? Does our life and our and our sadness and our and, and our humanity mean nothing to you?" So there's always this call out, mm. irrespective of the state of the regimes or the state of the rulers. Let's put that conversation aside. There seems to be an innate call to the rulers and to the regimes and to the armies and to the wider Muslim Ummah. Is this just a pipe dream? to expect that there will be something more than what they are currently doing or not doing. I'm talking specifically about military intervention. Is this too high of an expectation from the neighboring countries, Muslim countries and Arab countries? To Is the best of my knowledge, the people of Gaza have not asked any Arab regime for military intervention. They just asked for not colluding with the Zionists. That's all they were asking for. They were asking the Egyptians, just open the, the border crossing, allow the wounded out, allow food and water in. Uh, so they're really asking for very simple things. Uh, I cannot blame people who are deeply wounded when they cry for help. Uh, but you may think of it as a testimony. Shahada, this is a testimony. But that on the day of judgment, you will be brought and reminded that we called on you, we asked for your help, 
and you let us down and allowed our enemies to slaughter us in cold blood the way they're doing. It's a testimony. Bringing the podcast to a close. Can there be, is, is ceasefire the priority right now? Ceasefire, a ceasefire is something that everybody in Gaza would welcome, definitely. But it's not going to be uh, a, cease, a temporary ceasefire that allows the exchange of hostages and then uh, in a few days' time there is a resumption uh, of bombardment. So not a humanitarian yes, ceasefire. Yes, Hamas insists that a ceasefire has to be a permanent one. And then we can negotiate and we can talk. And uh, uh, by the way, uh, as I was just reading in a brilliant piece by uh, Avi Schleim, the Oxford renowned scholar, uh, he wrote uh, a piece, a brilliant piece in Middle East Eye about this. And he proves that throughout the history of this conflict, Hamas never ever uh, uh, broke, uh, they never broke a ceasefire. They never violated a ceasefire. It was always Israel. Avishlem wrote this. Avishlem. Okay. And uh, that's what I argue also in my book that if they are unable to defeat us and we are unable to defeat them, a long-term truce would be the best solution. Forget about a two-state solution or a one-state solution. This doesn't really mean anything. But we can uh, stop this bloodshed and we can stop this suffering on both sides uh, if uh, a hudna or a long-term truce is reached. And uh, usually I'd, I'd be asked by people, what guarantee do you have that Hamas will keep their promise, their word, as if the Israelis are the ones who are keeping their word and Hamas is the one that, that, that doesn't. And I always argue, and I argue that in my book, that hudna for a Muslim is a contract. And if you enter into a contract, you are bound by it in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Is it a permanent contract? Uh, it's a contract that lasts depending on the, the, the duration and depending on the uh, maintenance of the conditions that are agreed upon. Okay. Um, if the Israelis want to end this and they want to have a peace of mind for say 15 or 20 or 30 years, long-term hudna is the only way forward. Nothing else will work. How is long-term hudna any different to normalization? Long-term hudna doesn't mean normalization. It means an end of cessations in exchange for certain conditions. This was the offer made by Sheikh Ahmad Yassin in 1994 Amen. when the Israelis went to see him in his prison cell after Hamas started the martyrdom operations. They said to him, Sheikh Yassin, we want to end this. How can we end it? He said, very easy. Stop killing us. We'll stop killing you. He sa they said, how? He said, we'll enter into a truce, long-term truce. End occupation, 1967, that is go back to 1967 borders. Release our prisoners, remove your settlers, and let future generations decide what they want to do then. Apart from this, a Palestinian cannot genuinely recognize the right of Israel or Zionism to come from Europe and occupy our houses and our lands and depopulate us. That's not legitimate. So there's a difference between a de jure recognition and a de facto recognition. Yes, Israel exists. It exists in our land. It exists on our homes. It's illegal and will continue to be an illegal presence. But we can, through a long-term truce, accept that this is a de facto situation. Maybe the generation of my grandchildren and the grandchildren of whoever is in power in Israel today will realize in 20 years that probably we can live together. Probably we can work out something like what happened in South Africa and mm. apartheid and then all citizens are equal and we can live together. Similarly, 
I can see this happen in the distant future when Zionism is no longer there as an ideology because it's a racist ideology. It's the exact mirror image of apartheid. Once you're done with Zionism, renounce Zionism, declare it uh, null and void, then we can live together happily and forever. Jazakallah khairan for your time. It was thoroughly a beneficial conversation. I was honored to have you on. Thank you very much. Thank you. Brothers and sisters and friends, I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. Do remember, if you want to catch up with all the episodes, including this one, you can find us on all the major audio platforms. If you're tuning in via YouTube, do remember to click subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel, leave a comment, like this video. And until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.